This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. Here are two from the vault. Delia Efron on her intimate novel, Syracusa, and Mary Roach on the science of waging war. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Delia Efron on the line. Her new book is Syracusa. Hello, Delia. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So your novel is set in Sicily, in the, the place that it is named for, and is about two married couples and a daughter from the U.S. who decide to vacation there. Now, this could be something great, or it could be a disaster. Tell us about these five people. There's two couples, Lizzie and um, Michael are a New York couple. They're married, and he is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who's also writing a novel now and he was very successful when he was younger in his 20s and is worried now in his 40s that he will never recapture that glory and Lizzie his wife is a journalist whose life is a little complicated now because like many journalists we know in New York it is very hard to get work and make a living so her career is a little trembly right now Hmm. Um, Michael we find out at the beginning of this story is having an affair. So he does not want to go on this vacation to Italy. He does not want the intimacy of a vacation, the sexual expectations. And of course, Lizzie knows nothing of this, so she is looking forward to it. Um, Our other couple, Finn and Taylor, uh, are from Portland, Maine, and they have a daughter named Snow. And they... uh, Finn and Lizzie, that is, who are not married to each other, once had an affair long ago, like 15 years before, a summer fling that lingers with a certain amount of glow now looking back. And they kind of can't help themselves. They tend to flirt and they don't mean to. So these couples go off together and each of them has secrets from the other. And this is a, this is a novel about betrayal and deceit in marriage. So your your novel is set in Syracuse, uh, which is a popular destination for for tourists. But um, I, I read that you had a, a different uh, a, a feeling about it there. Uh, initially, you you loved it, but then it was it became kind of stark. Tell us about um, Syracuse for you and your your feeling there, and why you set it there. I went there like in I forget two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and I. I don't even know why I picked that place. We were going to Italy, and I think I heard that Sicily invented ice cream or something. So um, yes. I was dragging my husband to this place where, you know, the the first gelato place in the world existed. And this turned out really not to be true. Okay. But 
I read it in some guidebook. Anyway, so we find ourselves there, and I'd never been to Sicily, and this is this place, the old section, is which is an island connected to the rest of Syracuse by a little, very short little bridge, um, is, well, its ancient footprint still, rule, still rules because the Romans knocked all the trees down in like 212 B.C., and then they built warships with the lumber, and they never planted trees again, and they just sort of paved it with stone. So it still is these tiny, windy streets, and it's 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 really a stone paradise with tattered buildings and a rather extraordinary central square. But the, so the first day I was there, I thought, my gosh, this is the most magical place I have ever been. And the next day, I thought, if I spend one more second here, I'll go mad. <laughs> so I knew if you were going to have, I mean, it was immediately to me as a novelist, the setting for a book. And, and if um, you wanted couples, I wanted to write about marriage. If you wanted couples on a vacation to go crazy, they should end up in Syracuse. Well, I was going to say there are some marriages where one day you think this is magical, and the next day you think, get me out of here. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, the the other thing that happened uh, a long, long time ago, a psychoanalyst said to me that what we think of is, as chemistry is really psychology. Two people falling in love across a crowded room is just one neurosis spotting its other perfect neurotic match. (laughs) Wow. And I find that just so chilling. I mean, it is chilling, isn't it? And yet, you know, in my very long, happy marriage, there was not a day that went by that I didn't know how neurotically perfect we were for each other. And, you know... It was a happy marriage, but in in other marriages, you see how matched it is, but how toxic it is. Mm-hmm. And I think I, th- I felt that way about my parents because they they had a ended up in a very unhappy marriage. But and as a child, I thought, oh, of course, you know, my father wants to leave my mother. And then I realized when I was quite a bit older that, of course, he didn't have the least interest in leaving my mother. You know that they needed to be in battle all the time. Right. So marriage is. Oh, boy. I mean, I really wanted to explore the dark side of marriage. And what drew your characters, these these two couples and, and well, one the one uh, daughter, to Syracuse? Was it was it the same thing? Was it the uh, draw of uh, gelato? I think I used that for Lizzie, yeah, to, to <laughs> why she picks this crazy place. But actually, she has an ulterior motive because her father has told her all about Syracuse because he absolutely loved um, jazz. And after the war, this is really crazy, but after... Mussolini's son, Romano, was obsessed with American jazz. How crazy is that, right? Benito Mussolini's mm-hmm. a fascist dictator, and his son is like in his bedroom listening to American jazz. <laughs> and and after the war, uh, Romano had a jazz concert in Syracuse, and I used that for, you know, things that her father, her father has died, and she absolutely adored her father. And so she she does things to celebrate his memory. And so the real reason they're in Syracuse is really because Lizzie you know, is is remembering her dad, which nobody else kind of, they, they sort of discover that in the course of it. But that's what really drives her there. I mean, I, she just says it's it's the gelato, but it's a more powerful mm. reason. So you, you have these intergenerational tensions as well. Tell us a little bit more about Snow and about how her presence on on this vacation, which would otherwise be two couples, two married couples, um, changes that dynamic? Well, 
first of all, I just want to say as a writer, an odd number is a really great thing. Okay. Like a scene in a movie with three people is always much more fun to write than a scene with uh, two people. Right. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I'm making and going from four to five. But what Snow is, was really important character to me is that she is, she's the mystery at the heart of the story. Do you, is she shy or is she cunning? Is she uh, manipulating or is she being manipulated? Uh, should we love her? Should we fear her? Should we worry about her or want to protect other people from her? And that, to me, I mean, Snow sort of slides from the side of the story in Rome to the center in Syracuse. And she was, I mean, she's the very long fuse in the in the, that's been lit that is going to, you know, explode this entire story. And uh, I just... I've always loved writing children, but I've never written a child as, as – I don't even want to call her wicked because she's kind of a mystery. I've never written a child like this. Hmm. And it was partly influenced, aside from, of course, seeing Patty McCormick in The Bad Seed when I was a child. It was also just because she's not like that, really, is that is that today a lot of mothers tend to be somewhat fused with their – daughters. Mm -hmm. Well, some parents seem to be fused with their children, I should say. And you go sometimes to their house and they don't quite know where they start and the kid ends and you don't quite know which is the adult in the house. Right. And I want Lizzie in this story does not have kids, so she does not understand Taylor's relationship to her daughter. She sees it as neurotic and Taylor sees Lizzie as someone who hasn't had children and feels that Lizzie is somehow emotionally incomplete for that because she doesn't have any understanding of what it is to to be a mother, to feel the responsibility and, and love that you feel for a child. So I was exploring also this dynamic, which is that Taylor, of course, isn't really understanding what's going on with Snow, and Lizzie and Taylor don't trust each other because of this, this, this you know, their prejudices, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to talk about the friendship that the four have, um, and and what are the tensions there, um, both back in in the U.S. but also in in Syracuse. Well, I mean, of course, on any trip, it never you know people aren't born the day they they go on the trip, so you really need to know what their what their histories are, and you always do when you write a novel. But uh, and this is we should say it's a Rashomon, so. Each of the four adult characters is telling his version of the story in alternate chapters. And therefore, you're finding out what each of them thinks of, of what's going on. And, and some of them say things to you like, I'm going to mess with you. That's who I am. You know, so um, they're all unreliable narrators. Right. Um, and uh, that for me was really interesting. But the friendships... Um, the, the, probably the biggest friendship is between Lizzie and Finn, who had the fling years before. And the reason this couple is on vacation together is that they met by accident in a city the year before, and they had such a wonderful time meeting for dinner that they just said, let's do it next year. It's not as if they have spent, you know, the time in between together. Their lives, I mean, Lizzie and Michael have a New York life, and it's sort of chic and literary and all of that. And and Finn runs a restaurant, and he's a real Irish guy. And I think he's he's a Republican for sure. And Michael isn't, you know. And and um, there's a kind of uh, my uh, Finn's more working class, and it was so 
this is an unlikely friendship, and yet at the same time, they have fun on a trip, or they have had fun on a trip. And, you know, trips are, I don't know, I don't know how much traveling you guys have done, but have you ever done it with couples? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because you're with them much more than you ever would normally ever be. And vacations in general are unpredictable things, aren't they? And to put Americans um, in in foreign countries, uh, some are good at that, some aren't. And when things start to go south, as they do in this story, because you are aware all the time that we're in Syracuse, that we're heading toward catastrophe, <laughs> you know, they're they're more vulnerable because they're in a foreign country. So you talked about um, the the slow slide toward catastrophe. We can we can see the disaster looming in the distance. What's it like to write that to to sort of keep the tension going in this almost kind of thriller plot, rising tension way, um, while also being very deep in the heads of these people who maybe as characters can't see their catastrophe coming. Yeah, I, I tell you, just writing it was hard. I mean, it was hard to switch voices. Because, uh, you know, I'd suddenly get, you know, someone in my head and then their section would be over and I'd have to, oh my gosh, now I have to, you know, I have to go from Lizzie to being Michael to being Finn. It was, and each of them had to have very distinct voices and to write differently. So that was, that was hard. And I had maps. So as the story went on, I, look, I never plot, make plot decisions ahead, really. I knew that my book was called Syracusa from the beginning, and I knew that that meant something big had to happen there. And uh, I pretty much knew who it would happen. No, I didn't actually know who it was going to happen to. Hmm. Um, and so, but I knew that I started them out with these problems that, you know, with the affair going and the, you know, and Finn and, and Lizzie having a, a kind of a friendship, a loyalty to each other, because I was exploring as well betrayal and friendship as well as betrayal in in marriage, um, and which is the bigger betrayal, um, although Michael says betrayal of this magnitude is the exclusive province of married couples. That is true of marriage, but it is also just his point of view. It was very hard to do, and I don't know if any writers who come on this show talk about the third quarter of a book, but the third quarter of a book is like being lost in the desert. Oh, tell us about that. With no, We've like not had anyone no talk about that. water at all. You get past the halfway point, and it's if you are crawling on sand with no water. In fact, my friend Sarah says that when she gets to that point in a book, she throws herself in the bathtub every five minutes to calm down. So, um... It getting through the third quarter where where everything is as complicated as it can be and it's getting more I mean, if you structure a plot the complications have to really mount up there and um I I just thought I'm never gonna get through this. I'm never I can't even remember. What does Finn know? What does Lizzie know? What are they gonna find out in this thing that the other didn't know? I mean, I was just I mean, I was just reeling around and also I like to move I mean the whole important thing of this book was not only to go back and forth, but to keep the momentum going. So you never got, you never got, uh, blogged down by the fact that you were hearing other points of view. And, and so I had to know where to, how to take you faster through some things and slower through other things. The pacing was critical. Honestly, I, I it was as hard a, a sort of literary problem as I've ever tried to tackle. And then the fourth quarter comes and suddenly you're just writing a million pages a day. It's a very strange thing. Hmm. So it sounds like it was a real challenge for you, um, in like a technical challenge. 
Yeah, it was it was huge. And also, I was writing in the voices of two men, which turned out to be the most fun in the world. But, um, you know, I had to really, I mean, every so often I would run into my husband's office and say, well, I would say, well, what would he call, I mean, I can't use dirty words on this book. You said there are dirty words in this book, or that's such an old-fashioned term, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say, well, what would he call uh, Michael's mistress here? What what term would he use for it? And, and Jerry would tell me, and then I'd run back to my office. He was like, wasn't totally always um, in touch with the level of vulgarity that guys can use. But I did, you know, I, I mean, I really had a great time writing the men, and, and our audiobook, Darren Goldstein, who's in The Affair, he plays Finn in the audiobook. I have four great actors who did the audio. I have John Slattery, who you probably know from Mad Men, and mm-hmm. he plays Michael, and, and his wife in real life, Talia Balsam, plays plays Lizzie, and Katie Finneran, who's married to Darren Goldstein, and uh, is an amazing two-time Tony Award winner. She's divine and so funny, too, and she plays... Taylor, but Darren said to me, you know, you got the sex right with the men. Hmm. And I, it was as if I'd been given a compliment from the gods or something. I was just so excited. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Delia Efren, author of Syracusa, and um, getting into uh, the voice acting, as you mentioned, for the audiobook. Um, when you're writing this, how does your screenwriting kind of influence your novel writing? Are you thinking in terms of dialogue? Are you picturing an actor as a character? No, I'm not doing that when I, when I write the book. In fact, a book is so free. You can do anything in a book. I mean, if you decide you suddenly want to write a newspaper article and throw it into the center of your book, you can do that. Not that I did it here, but you can do almost anything. Well, I, I did do something like that toward the end, didn't I? Um, you can do almost anything in a novel, and I love the freedom of that. And in, in the context of of plot, I do love to make you turn the pages. It's something that I, I certainly have learned a lot about that from screenwriting, I have to say. But um, in a novel, you can explore ideas about marriage and friendship and motherhood and these things that I think this book give the book a kind of depth and make people want to think about the nature of marriage or friendship. And and you don't really have that. You don't have all that freedom with a with a screenplay. I mean, you're really just doing a blueprint for someone else to interpret the director and actors and and you have to distill everything into its essence. And and you know, the book is is your voice, your imagination, the fullness of your story completely and all in your control. Are you able to write uh uh screenplays and uh novels simultaneously? No, not simultaneously. No. Um, but I am, Syracusa has been sold to film. Uh, working title has bought it. I'm terribly excited. They're a wonderful company. They, 
they did not just things you know well, like Bridget Jones' Diary and the and you know Four Weddings and a Funeral, but they do all the Coen Brothers movies and The Theory of Everything and The Danish Girl. They just a very classy, wonderful company with great people, and they've bought it for film. So I'm writing the screenplay now. Mm. What's that like? And it's just you know one of the great things about writing the book is that. Um, it's there. I mean, if anyone wants to see me in full, it's there. It's written. So I'm. So in in the writing the movie, I have to like, I have to let go of stuff. I have to figure out what the most important elements are, how to hold on to the texture and character, and and lose other things. And I have to turn it into a visual story. Mm. I have to turn it visual. And I mean, this is a Rochamon in as a as a um, book. But I don't see a reason to do that as a film, for instance, because what somebody's thinking, I mean, if you have the camera on one person and they don't, you can, you can, you can use film to create that same feeling without actually changing voices. You can have, make it absolutely clear that one person doesn't know what's going on and the other does. It's not necessary to, to do that. So it's it's obviously not a a uh, you're lifting dialogue from the book and just putting it right into your screenplay uh, 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 processor and, and so so it's what is not it? quite it's not like that you really do have to reconceive it for film and this is something that so many authors have once they've stepped back they've they've sold their the lucky ones who've sold their film rights to movie production companies and uh they step back it's like wait a minute that's not the same thing that i've written but here you are actually in control of that no i am so not in control i can't even tell you (laughs) um but i'm a little more in control than that um a screenwriter even if it's your book, they can just fire you at any moment. That's why these stories, like this story, which is so precious to me, the Syracuse, is a book because nobody's firing me off my own book. Right. right. But, but you can fire a screenwriter. Anybody can. The director can decide he wants someone different. The the um, the actor can come on and say, "Oh, you know what? I have this writer I really like. Let's hire him hmm. or her. Most likely him. Anyway, so." Um, that is, you are vulnerable. You have, and and what you're writing, you know what? It isn't the movie. You're writing a blueprint for a movie. I mean, the movie will be. Oh, this movie is, is being directed by Alfonso Gomez Rayon, who did Me Earl and a Dying Girl, and he's just a wonderful director. But it will be at least as much his if than mine. I mean, when it's done, and it will be the actors too. I mean, the difference is is collaboration and. Nobody's collaborating with me on my book. So um, your parents were screenwriters. You and your late sister, Nora, both became writers. Uh, I'm the child of writers, and I know that can lead to uh, a lot of pressure to write and um, maybe some mixed feelings about being compared to one's relatives, whether the comparison's favorable or not. Is is that something that you've had to wrestle with? Well, first of all, there are four of us sisters, Mm. and all four are writers. Um. So the imprint of my my parents. I don't know if you had this because you, you're. Are you writing? I'm trying to, but it but it's hard, you know, because I keep going back and forth of you know, what if I'm not as good as my parents? What if I'm better than my parents? You know, it's no, uh, no, right? Yeah, there's, there's all there's all that things, stuff in the head. Those things, all that baggage uh, operate. There's no question. But in my family, um, my sister Nora, like she became a writer when she was like two years old, as far as I can tell, and then. 
I did not become, I didn't, I wasn't going to deal with it. I mean, my parents, my sis, my older sister, you know, I wasn't going to do it. So I put it off till I was 28 mm-hmm. and nine. And then I started writing. Then I thought, oh my gosh, I, this is really what I was meant to do. And I'm, my life is now going away. You know, it's, I'm getting on here and I better do what I mean to do. So I started at 29. My sister Amy started at 39. Mm-hmm. And my sister Hallie started in her late 40s. Wow. And they're all, we're all published writers, but the point is the family business, you know, to take it on, it just got more and more of a thing, right? Yeah. But my family, that was the only thing that was rewarded. I mean, if I said, uh, something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. <laughs> so I, I was like, that was it. My mother was raising writers. My father was raising writers. So I think the pressure was fantastic, even though they never said you will grow up and be a writer. And, uh, you know, they don't have to, right? The family friends are coming no, and going, oh, no. are you I writing? Mean, are you writing? Your, your mother doesn't need to tell you what she thinks. You know it. Right. Um, so so how do you sort of, uh, you know, many years on, how how, how have you kind of, I suppose I have a personal stake in finding out, uh, how, have you, how have you reconciled with that? How have you come to terms with that? Well, one thing is writing becomes habit. First, you have to teach yourself. You have to be disciplined, you mm-hmm. know. So that's a big thing to teach yourself discipline. And then it becomes habit. Then you don't question whether you do it. It's just part of your identity. And you're just every minute of every day, it just becomes part of how you see the world. You're, you're snatching things. Uh, writers are cannibals. They're always snatching this, that, and the other from everybody and everything. And and it, it's going into this, you know, something, somewhere, something you write. In fact, my character is Michael. And Lizzie, they're always looking at their world and wondering what they're going to grab out of it to mm-hmm. use for their mm-hmm. for their work. And um, so, you know, and then it becomes love after it becomes habit. And it, it's almost like food for me. And this year, it's been such a difficult year because my husband died in October. And I, I tell you, I, I think I've just lived on writing. I mean, that's been my food. It's been where I'm at my desk, I know who I am, I'm happy there, you know. And um, so it becomes this thing that takes care of you. I almost think of that as, that it, that it's, for me, it's almost a religion writing now. Wow. But that's the course of a lifetime of writing. And I think the big thing is to do it, if we're looking for, just do it. And by writing, do you mean book writing, or would you include screenwriting in that? I'm too? not. I'm not differentiating because I also write essays. And, right. I mean, uh, I write, and I, over the course of my life, I've written all different things, and I've liked that because there are different rewards from each one, and also I've been able to prolong my career because if you know, and they they aren't interested out there in Hollywood if you're like over like practically over 45 you can you can retire from the writers guild at age 52 which is pretty amazing isn't mm-hmm. it so um but because i go back you know i then go back to my writing books and then they get optioned and then i'm still in the business you know mm-hmm. and then somebody says oh well well cuz i just wrote a pilot for showtime so there's a kind of a way that each feeds the other mhm and and but for me, books, you know, that's my heart. I mean, yeah. Syracuse is a really big book for me in terms of I can see I hit another gear writing it, and I could feel that happening as hard as it was. So, um, 
you know, your books are your imagination, your heart, your, um, and a screenplay. I mean, I've had screenplays in development for 10 years and they never get made. That doesn't happen with books. Right. It's so wonderful that you've, that you've had that to lean on and find comfort in. And it's just, it's just this, this beautiful image of, of writing through grief. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been salvation. And my friends and my family, friendship, very important thing. Well, um, so you've got this screenplay that you're working on now. Do you have mm-hmm. um, a sense of what's happening after that? Another another novel to live in your heart? Um, well, right now I'm doing the screenplay um, for Syracuse, and this novel is like a, climbing a mountain or something. <laughs> You know, I think I need to, like, calm down for a while. Mm-hmm. And then after I do this screenplay, I actually have another screenplay assignment, which is uh, to write, oh, my God, it's, it's to write a movie for Meg Ryan to direct, and it's about the publishing business. Oh, that's exciting. Really? Yeah, it is. Great. So, but that's, you know, down the line this year. Uh, well, it sounds like that's that's going to be uh, quite quite an adventure, Um because you know, obviously, you're you're immersed in the publishing process. You have a sense of how it really works. Yes, but you know what? I'm interviewing because I have never actually worked at a publisher, and it is very interesting. What is interesting about that it? Happens, different. <laughs> oh, I can't tell you yet. But if and when this movie happens, right. I'll come back on the show. Okay. We'll talk all about it. Oh boy, that right. that would be lovely. That would be very right. exciting. Yeah. Uh, but you're you're getting to kind of talk to editors and publishers and people on the yeah, the business are side. Being really fun and interesting. So so this is going to be the network of of publishing. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It's a good idea. (laughs) Well, right now my head is so in Syracuse, so uh, I I haven't, you know, I just have some notes for that right now. You you must be hoping that they're going to film on location. The way you described the the town itself, you know, the, the stone streets and everything, it sounds like a wonderful backdrop. You absolutely, it has to be shot there. There's just no alternative for that. I mean, Syracuse is so specific. It would be like shooting Venice and not being in Venice. How could you create that, really? Mm. And uh, have you gone back, and what, what do you think you would uh, you would feel were you to go back? Oh, no, you know, I after I started the book, I thought, I have to go back. I mean, you can't just go to a place, visit it, and do a book. So I went and did a, a serious research trip there in which I did everything my characters would do. Mm. So, um, you know, look, my idea of a vacation is you just walk and eat. But um, in my book, Taylor is is a culture person. So I went to the Greek ruins, and I went to the Caravaggio, and I did all the stuff she would do. I went to a Da Vinci exhibit. Then, you know, when I was Lizzie, I went to the food markets, which was something I actually would do myself. And it's so beautiful, the food market there. It's this humble, wonderful place with millions of varieties of oranges and fish, fresh fish on slabs of ice. And I mean, it's kind of spectacular. And then Finn likes to cruise bars late at night and hang out and drink and just make friends with whoever he can possibly make friends with. And um, so I'm like at two in the morning. I'm in some dive bar, you know, uh, with the karaoke blaring and... I had to, I wanted there's a boat scene a very important scene on, in the book takes place on a boat and uh, I hadn't been on a boat since I got seasick when I was 13 so I had to do that I mean it's kind of great because you travel as your characters mm-hmm. but do you have a, any challenge of finding yourself again at the end of it 
Uh, no, not really. I mean, you just, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, you know, I make notes all the time and I draw, I even draw when I'm on trips because it makes you look harder. I can't draw at all, by the way, I have no talent. I just do it to force myself to see better. And, um, and it's, it's, it's fun because you're on the trip, but you have a, you have a job to do. And also I got very lucky. I made friends just by freakly connect, freak little connections. I, I met some extraordinary, wonderful people in, in Syracuse and they guided me through my book. I could discuss anything with them, and especially Alex, who is this architect. She was so wonderful, and she had lived there for 10 years and was fluent in English and just was able to um, – she vetted my book. She, I, looked, I showed her all my photos. She, we talked about the sites I was going to use and what was true about them and what wasn't. And I had a lot of help and, and um, generosity from other people. Well, it sounds like it's all come together into this wonderful project. Thank you. We've been talking with Delia Efren. You can find her book, Syracusa, in stores right now. Delia, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun. I have a wonderful day. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mary Roach on the line. Her new book is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Hello, Mary. So glad you could join us. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me on. So I I want to ask first, how did you come up with this subject? It, It seems both wonderfully simultaneously broad and narrow. (laughs) <laughs> I came up with it in a kind of an unusual way. I was reporting a story in India on the world's hottest chili pepper and this sort of brutal chili pepper eating contest in India. Uh, this was for a magazine piece. And I heard about, someone told me the military in India had weaponized this chili. And I thought, well, I'd better report on that. And I went over to the Indian Defense Ministry Science Branch. And, and indeed, they had done this. But while I was there, just talking to people, Oh, one guy was working on a leech repellent. Someone else was talking about some, the, some psychology arm of the military that had over there that had been looked into telepathy. And I went, wow, military science is, is not all bullets and bombs. It's really kind of esoteric and broad and really fascinating. And, you know, the military has a big budget. So they, you know, they have all of these labs and all these kind of, you know, wonderful places for Mary Roach to go and explore. So that's kind of how I, that's sort of what planted the seed. And then I uh, got rolling. I didn't get anywhere with the Indian uh, military, but the uh, U.S. military was uh, was uh, more welcoming. I was amazed by the level of access that you got, that you just, it, at least from reading the book, it sounded like you just kind of strolled in and they showed you everything. Is is that, <laughs> is, I mean, I'm sure it, it wasn't exactly Hello, like Mary that. Mary Roach. Open your door. How did you make that happen? Um, Well, I, I, having dealt with NASA for packing for Mars, I I knew that uh, it would be helpful to have some approval up front from as high as possible so that people at various echelons would feel like, well, I'm not getting in trouble if the person at the top is okay with this book. And there is, at the the Pentagon, there's a um, public affairs office for books. And it's very, uh, 
it's not like they really know what you're doing because I didn't know what I'm doing at, at that time. I gave them a sort of broad uh, sort of sketch of what I thought that would be in the book. And then they just sort of send an email saying, you know, we, we're okay with this. And that doesn't mean that anybody you then contact is required to speak to you. It doesn't mean that they're going to review your book. It's just sort of a nod of, we know who you are and what you do, and we're okay with this. You know, I'm not doing zero dark 30. I'm really not <laughs> the, the person that is keeping them up at night. I'm Mary Roach writing about their science. So um, it, it's kind of a, um, it's something I think that they welcomed in a way because a lot of this work doesn't really get much exposure, it kind of falls to the cracks. So that was sort of how I did it. And you say that your interest in the military and soldiers was piqued not by armaments, uh, but by, quote, exhaustion, shock, bacteria, panic, and ducks. And what? Oh, ducks, yes. <laughs> ducks, yes. So, so tell us about those things. Tell us about how, how maybe one, two, or all of them uh, play in, 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 your, in your narrative. Well, I, I tend to write about the human body in extreme circumstances, unusual circumstances, and combat is really one of those. It's about as extreme. It's extreme noise, extreme heat, extreme sleep deprivation, panic, bugs, flies, infectious diseases. Uh, the ducks was sort of a side thing. Um, so it, it, it kind of fit my, I was going to say my oeuvre, but I hate to say that word, oeuvre. But uh, it, it fit in. It fit in nicely because, and all of those things I felt we all experience heat and fear and sleep loss. So I thought there might be a broad, you know, it might resonate on a fairly broad level with people, even if they don't think of themselves as people who read books about the military. So that's kind of um, my hope. And so, tell us a little bit about, uh, for instance, for about exhaustion and, and heat. How how do soldiers a- experience that? I mean, I know you talk, you go into, you, you touch on the history of warfare as well. And and what did you find? Well, um, heat is uh, has been a tremendous concern lately because of the. U.S. military has been operating in some very hot places, and you're not only is it hot out, but you are you're wearing body armor and you're carrying a heavy load and you're exerting yourself, and that's a recipe for heat injury and heat uh, heat stroke being the most extreme version of that, and that can be fatal and sometimes is. So the military is looking at. I was over at um, uh, the medical school uses outside D.C. where they were doing a study. They have a they call it the cookbox, and you go in and it's very hot, and they have you on a treadmill, and they, yeah, they, 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 they are looking. In that case, they were specifically looking at are there ways to identify individuals who are very susceptible to heat stroke, to heat injury, and if you, and maybe a blood mark or something genetic, because there's a lot of individual difference. Some people just crumple in the heat, and other people soldier on, as they say. And they're trying to figure out how is there a way to identify, medically identify these folks and keep them out of extreme circumstances like that uh, if, while they're deployed, that is. So that that's what was going on uh, with the heat study. And, of course, I got in there with the backpack on and uh, the rectal thermometer probe and marched along on the treadmill uh, for about seven minutes, I think, with the full, tre- with the full backpack on and, and then... Um, uh, it was time. I completely flushed, and I'm I'm not one of those people who you could send into uh, Afghanistan with a heavy pack and 
uh, body armor and expect them to function well. So a lot of your research, you, you, I, I mean, it, you, you, you try this out yourself. I mean, so such the, such like the heat box. Um, what was that like? What did you gain from that? What did you learn from that? I learned that, <laughs> that it is unbelievably difficult to, uh, I mean, I couldn't, I, I, to be a soldier, to be, um, deployed in circumstances like that. I remember the first time, um, there was a, there was a, the first time I, I, I just not, didn't even put on, I picked up a, a body armor vest, like, and I, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not completely out of shape, but it was hard for me just to, to lift that thing mm. and to imagine wearing that with a backpack that, you know, with, with like, so like a hundred pounds of weight on your back and to be moving over a long period of time in heat. It just unbelievable. I mean, I was experiencing like a fraction of what these men and women experience and it's it's pretty stunning how they I mean they they're uh, they're it's amazing that they're able to do it and willing to do it so um kind of a abrupt awakening I guess you could say and speaking of the the things that people endure you have an entire chapter about amputees tell us tell us a little bit about that and about how medical science is helping them well I I have a chapter about um Specifically about something called Euro trauma, as in urological trauma. So it's it's uh, it wasn't a chapter about um, amputees per se. It was about uh, a problem that has received a lot less coverage, uh, uh, which is um, damage to the to the genitals. Because uh, and, and this is something that there wasn't as much work in this area for a long time because for two reasons. One, the, the the explosions, the explosions have the bombs have gotten bigger. So now you're not just amputating um, a foot or a leg. The damage is going up higher to the pelvic region. And um, when that used to ha- it used to be when you had an explosion that big, the patient would typically die. And now they're because of advances in combat trauma care, they're they're surviving. And now needing reconstructive work, and so there was. Um, I, I saw a, a surgery at Walter Reed where they were rebuilding a urethra, which was kind of amazing. They take tissue from inside the cheek because it's hairless and it um, can withstand moisture. And they actually fashion fashion a new urethra, which is a tube that you pee out of. So that, and uh, yeah, and that that was amazing. They also uh, that um, penis transplants are now. The first one was done a couple of weeks ago. I was present at a cadaver lab where they were uh, working out some of the details of which arteries would we take, which are the most important. Um, they had a cadaver and they hooked up the artery to a IV bag of blue liquid, and then when the blue liquid would flow, you'd see kind of it almost looked like a time lapse bruise where you'd see where the this liquid was going, and that would tell you, all right, this is an important artery to take because it feeds all of this tissue, and we would need that to keep you know to keep the transplant alive. So they were working on that in the lab, in the cadaver lab. So I was there for that, which was uh, fascinating. This was at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center. You, in, in the book, you write so appreciatively of of the cadavers, of the, the bodies that are used for um, finding out what happens when a bomb goes off or for um, medical research like this. And uh, I was wondering if if that dates back to your book Stiff to to this this appreciation um, to the people who give their bodies to science and then to the bodies themselves. Yes, 
very much so, yeah. Uh, I, I came to see cadavers, uh, research cadavers as these sort, sort of like superheroes in a sense because since they feel no pain, uh, and they don't, they don't care what's done with them. The person who donated the body really just wants to be helpful and that's it. And so, you know, so it's a situation where you can, you can remove a leg and you can test, say, uh, you know, make a, like a safer outboard motor for a boat to make, you know, make sure it's not going to damage a swimmer who gets too close to it. You can, you know, things that you could never do with a person, obviously, and that you can't, there's no kind of computerized simulator that will give you the answers. You have these dead people who are like, you know what, I'll do it. I I want to help, and I don't feel any pain. So it is this kind of superpower for the betterment of mankind. And uh, I, I I'm so impressed when people make the decision to donate their bodies, and also have a tremendous amount of um, respect for the people who do the work because you know they they have to deal with a lot of misunderstanding and and people thinking, oh, that's disrespectful or that sounds brutal. It's very hard for people to separate. Because a cadaver looks like a person, it's hard for them to separate a cadaver from a a real person. And you know, and you, you don't have to treat a cadaver the same way you treat a person. They don't feel any pain, and they're not alive, but they look they look like a person. So it's mm. it's a, it's a difficult area. Uh, it's it's sometimes fraught. And uh, so anyway, I have a lot of respect for all the people who do that work, and and the people who donate. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of Grunt and other books on uh, popular science and medical science. How did you start writing about science as a as a topic in general? I was writing for very early on in my career. I wrote for uh, a magazine called Hippocrates, which wrote uh, which covered medicine, health, the human body, and uh, and it was a wonderful magazine, and I, the, I started there only because uh, the, an editor I had worked with at a, um, the Sunday magazine in my home city, San Francisco, got a job there, so she sort of took me along with her. So it was really the first magazine feature writing I'd done, and it had to do with the human body and health medicine. So it was it was a, I kind of fell into this beat and really enjoyed it, even though I don't have a back I don't have a background in medicine or even in science. So um, it was all new to me and all fascinating. So and I kind of kept on that path, although I wrote uh, more general magazine features as well. So you were writing magazines, and then you had the opportunity to write uh, Stiff. How did that come about? Um, and and you, you said that you're not necessarily a science person. You don't you don't have a background in science. Um, how did you feel when approaching that subject? Um, well, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, I would love to have a background in science more than I have now because it would make my job easier. But on the other side of that, because every I'm coming at everything with uh, 
the eyes of a explorer, uh, I, you know, the human body is, I don't know. I just don't know how it works. And then I just, I just, you know, my sense of wonder and curiosity is, is intact. It's still, it's still there. I, th- I think, I think, uh, when, when you are a scientist and you, you, you get more and more advanced in your work, you know, you, you, what interests you becomes a little different from what interests the the person who doesn't have a background in science. So I, I guess I I'm coming at the topics from a place that's similar to most of my readers. So I think I you know, I you know I don't um, I, I'm excited about exploring how the body works in the way that you know a seventh grader taking a, a biology class might be. You know. A, uh, I have this. I am. I'm kind of uh, um, still in that state of wonder. So that's a good thing. But it does make the job a little more difficult because I'm. I'm always worried that I'm not going to get it right. That I don't because I don't have the background. I may have the details right, but I'm missing something in the big picture. And I'm always. I, I'm always worried about that with my books that I. Um, I don't have a deep grasp of the subject matter. So because I'm having to kind of educate myself as I go along. Right, right, and so doing the research, uh, checking, checking everything, um, but but obviously you 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 know you you put it all in this uh, in a really great engaging narrative structure, um, and and how do you do that? How do you find the structure of your book? I start out with looking for the narrative structure. That's my my main priority when I when I decide on a topic. I spend a few months uh poking around uh get, getting on PubMed seeing who the main players might be contacting these people and saying what have you got cooking in the next 6 months what's going to be going on over the next year is there something i might come and be there for so i'm i'm almost like more like a documentary filmmaker and that i'm i'm finding my locations because i want to have a a narrative like you said i want to have a setting with things happening and people talking and character uh so i think it helps to, you know, and I'll have that, this narrative structure on which to kind of hang the science and the facts. And, and I, I have to set up this, that, that narrative first, and then I can go in and, and insert the facts in appropriate places, the science that is, and the explanations. I can do it in the context of a conversation in a lab or in an operating room or a prison, who knows? And so it's, you know, weaving the narrative with the science, um, that, yeah, that's, that's how, that's how it happens. But, but my priority up front is finding the, the narrative, the, the place I'm going to go and the people who will be featured. So, uh, and once I have them, it's almost, you know, I feel like, ah, the chapter's all set. I'm done. So you mentioned with Grunt that it was in India, you, you, you came across the chili pepper that, that they would use for warfare. Uh, and then you started making inquiries, uh, uh, various U.S. government bodies. How did you come up with the structure for the narrative structure for Grunt? Um, I, again, I started out, um, the first place I went was the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System and set a conversation there. And while I was there, I met someone at the medical school, Uniform Services Unit. University of Health Sciences, uh, who this this woman knew folks at Walter Reed. She she said, "What are you interested in?" And I mentioned a few things. She she put me in touch with people. So um, that trip led to another 
two or three trips um, while I was uh, writing about the, um, the the rebuilding of that urethra. While I was there, the surgeon mentioned, oh, yeah, over at Johns Hopkins, they're doing some cadaver work towards a transplant, a penis transplant. I went, whoa, really? <laughs> so that, <laughs> that led to that trip. So very often one visit will uncover something that could become a separate chapter. So sometimes that happens. Other times, uh, I spend a lot of time uh, contacting, well, poking around online on various military, there's lots of military science websites, um, contacting public affairs folks. Like I knew Natick Labs in Massachusetts where they design everything soldiers wear, eat, sleep in, all the accessories. That, that mm. was a fertile place because there's a lot of really interesting labs and weather simulators and such. So I hounded the public affairs officer there for weeks, like, what's going on? What can I do? What could be, what's going to be, you know, here's what I do. Here's my book. I often send a copy of a uh, previous book. So they have a sense of what I'm looking for. That makes it easier for, for, for them to say, Oh, you know, um, we've got this uh, situation. We've got this study where people are going to eat combat, nothing but MRE combat rations for, six weeks, you know, something like that. They'll, they'll see that it has sort of a roachy air to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> they'll uh, contact me. I mean, like, that's my dream is I'll just send them a book and they'll go, oh, I see what you need. Guess what we've got going on. But more often I have to kind of, I'll call and go, well, what about this? And what about this? This sounds promising, this lab over here. What about the camouflage facility? What are they doing? Oh, that's classified. So a lot of this making a utter pest of myself and, um, yeah, I'm trying to uh, get them up to speed on the kinds of things that, that might work for the book. And, and sometimes that, you know, sometimes people get it or have time to focus on it. Other times they're too busy. So um, it's just a lot of turning over rocks, you know, maybe something here. What about over here? Uh, and and uh, in, the, you know, in the end, you have enough to fill a book. So do you have any plans for a memoir called Roach, which would follow in your, your theme of one word titles? Because I, I love, I love the way you sort of refer to yourself in the third person. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe it should just be called Geek. Cause I, uh, it sounds more like the, we have Bonk, we should have Geek. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I would, I think it'd be very fun to write a memoir, but I don't, think that the material would be as interesting as the material that's out there in the world of science. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure it would, I'm, I've lived a life that's really worthy of a memoir, but it, it would be terrific fun. So maybe someday I'll just do it anyway. And in the meantime, um, obviously you've got this book to promote. And after that, uh, do you have a sense of what's on tap for you? Are you already working on the next thing? I am not already working on the next thing. I have a couple very uh, larval <laughs> ideas. I don't even, they're so, uh, unformed and vague that I, I, not, I, I can't even voice them yet. But yeah, a, a couple possibilities, but nothing that I've, you know, I haven't signed a contract or anything. And, uh, what's your tour going to look like for, for this book? Do you, do you travel a lot for it? How does, um, how do you, how do you promote something like this? Do you, where do you find your audience? Well, it's the same audience as as always. I think. I mean, the, the, there may be some new readers in the military science community, but for the most part, I think it's Mary Roach readers, uh, and 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 promotion is is very much the same. It's it's 
two weeks on the road with um, East Coast and West Coast mostly um, with events sponsored by bookstores, uh, a lot of them off-site, but still sponsored by bookstores and, and some, you know, uh, speaker series as well. And uh, we're, we yeah, we've, we've done some outreach to the military world, but um, I don't, you know, I don't know how far the book will go with them. That will, it will be interesting to see whether they, cause I'm, whether they embrace it, you know, I, I'm an outsider to that world and I'm, no matter how hard I try, I'm still going to come across like somebody who was never in combat. Yeah. I, I've never, never been inside the military, not just, in, not just deployed, but just in that culture, because it really is a culture unto itself. And, and I was a, you know, a visitor. So, uh, they might be interested in my perspective. They might not. I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. We've been talking with Mary Roach. You can find her book, Grunt, in stores right now. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. This has been delightful. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 